It did uh, conveniently fall into five-year time periods for a while. 80 to 85 were the wild pieces. 85 to 90 were the tragic pieces. 90 to 95 were the death, specifically death pieces. And 95 to 2000 were the looking towards the light pieces. That's where I made a conscious decision not to just be the, the gloom meister for the rest of my life. But I think once in a while you need to take stock of yourself and say, am I writing what I really want to write? Is there something else, another direction I would like to pursue? And so I did want to write pieces that maybe were more life-affirming in that last half of the 90s. And then since then, I've been writing all sorts of things. That's composer Christopher Rouse talking about his life in music and the different periods that he's gone through as a composer. Welcome to Relevant Tones. I'm Seth Bosted. I have the great honor today to have Christopher Rouse as my guest on the program. He's a composer who's won many, many awards, including the Pulitzer Prize for his trombone concerto. I think that's especially significant because the trombone concerto was written shortly after the death of Leonard Bernstein and is conceived as a memorial for that great figure in music. Leonard Bernstein, as you probably know, was closely associated with the New York Philharmonic for many, many years. And since 2012, Christopher Rouse has been the composer in residence at the New York Philharmonic. So I feel like there's a kind of symbolic passing of the torch, if you will. You have the young composer paying homage to this very, very important mentor in his life, and then years later becoming the composer in residence at that composer's orchestra. I think it's an amazing story. Rouse is known primarily as a virtuosic orchestrator, and I think it's fair to say that the orchestra really is his instrument. This is where he's the most at home. This is where most of his important pieces have been written. He's kind of a modern-day Ravel in that he has this incredible sense of color and virtuosity in his orchestrations. He's known as a neo-romantic composer, but don't be fooled. He's also written a lot of atonal pieces. He's equally at home, I think, tonally and atonally, and some pieces even combine elements of both. He's also been inspired by the rock idiom, and he said that he wanted to, in many of his pieces, bring back the allegro. He thought that composers in the 20th century, and I tend to agree with this, were starting to write slower and slower music. He calls it a kind of slowing of the musical metabolism in the 20th century, and so he wanted to fight that and write a lot of consistently fast pieces, pieces that remain fast throughout. He's also a composer who has incorporated codes or games into his musical material. For example, he might use the letters of a friend's name in his music. The first piece I'm going to feature is called Iscariot. Here's Rouse to tell us about that piece. Iscariot refers to Judas Iscariot in the Bible, the biblical betrayer of Christ. Beyond that is not a religious piece. I just wanted to use his name as the symbol of betrayal. Um, Beyond that, then, there's not a lot I have to say about the piece because it's a very autobiographical piece and so rather personal. It is an encoded, one of the encoded works. Um, And I use the strophe-antistrophe form of Greek from Greek drama. So there will be a strophe, which is scored for strings, followed by an antistrophe, which features the celesta and some other instrument or or combination of non-string instruments. So it's kind of very ordered and structured that way. You, you know where you are. There are five strophes and four antistrophes. Um, various names are being spelled out, and that's kind of all I want to say about it. Stylistically, I could say that the strophes are all quite different. The first one is loud and tonal. The second one is loud and 
non-tonal. The third is soft and tonal. The fourth is soft and not tonal. And the fifth is kind of polytonal. So I tried to kind of get in the various combinations there of tonality with volume. That's composer Christopher Rouse talking about Iscariot, the piece that we're about to hear in a moment. And just in case you don't know what strophe or antistrophe are, you don't know what he's referring to there, they're basically divisions in ancient Greek plays and the odes, the poems. The poet John Milton says in its original Greek setting, strophe and antistrophe and epod were a kind of stanza framed only for the music. Let's have a listen. This is the Royal Stockholm Philharmonic with Alan Gilbert conducting Iscariot by composer Christopher Rouse.
Wang is a great example of what I'm talking about when I talk about Rouse as his incredible orchestrator. You can just hear the virtuosic use of the orchestra, especially in the final couple of minutes there, that, that great buildup, the entrance of the percussion, and the final chord. Beautiful music. That's Iscariot, performed by the Royal Stockholm Philharmonic with Alan Gilbert conducting. Alan Gilbert is the conductor of the New York Philharmonic also, so this is somebody with whom Rouse has a very close relationship. Judas Iscariot at this point is almost a mythical figure, although he was a real person, but he's come to represent so many different things that he's almost at that mythological level. The next piece I want to turn to is actually inspired by a true figure from mythology, and that's Phaeton from Greek mythology. Here again is composer Christopher Rouse to tell us about this piece, Phaeton. This really is kind of the end of the Furioso pieces from the early 80s. Uh, I had written Gorgon already, which is 18 minutes of music at the same fast, unrelenting tempo. Phaeton is the same thing, but shorter, only seven and a half or so minutes. Uh, and it was inspired by the Greek myth of Phaeton, the son of Helios, who was the sun god, but he was mortal, and he wanted to guide the chariot of the, the sun across the sky for one day, and uh, uh, he did, but couldn't control the horses, and. Uh, dried up all the rivers and was just in danger of setting Mount Olympus on fire. And so Zeus had to throw a thunderbolt at him and shatter the chariot, and Phaeton fell to his death. Again, the, I, the, if there's a message here, it's you know be careful. Uh, don't be careful that your uh, reach has to be close enough to the grasp so that you can control what you get. Phaeton's reach was too great, and he paid the price. So uh, it's a wild piece. It's a chariot ride. After an opening quick explosion, it gets very quiet, and in essence, the piece gets louder and louder uh, as it goes along uh, until you reach this, this horrific moment where the thunderbolt actually hits the chariot, and Phaeton um, screams as he falls uh, to earth. and. Uh, it's a showpiece. It's meant to be a showpiece, and, and, a, and a work that will kind of get the adrenaline flowing in the listener. Well, let's get the adrenaline pumping. Let's have a listen. This is Christoph Eschenbach leading the Houston Symphony Orchestra in Phaeton by Christopher Rouse. Thank you. 
We hear the final thunderbolt from Zeus bringing Phaeton's wild ride across the skies to an end. Wonderful music by Christopher Rouse, a clear example of his use of percussion and this incredible instrument that is the orchestra, that as I said before is the composer's instrument of choice, I think. That was the Houston Symphony Orchestra performing with Christoph Eschenbach, the conductor. Phaeton by Christopher Rouse. You're listening to Relevant Tones, a show featuring the music of contemporary composers. On today's show, my guest is Christopher Rouse, the composer-in-residence at the New York Philharmonic and a master of writing for the orchestra. You can find out more information about the program on Facebook or on our website at relevanttones.com. I'm featuring this great composer of virtuosic music for the orchestra, Christopher Rouse, on today's program. I think I have a special treat for our listeners. I'm going to devote the second half of the program entirely to the Symphony No. 4. This is a brand new piece by Rouse. It has not been commercially recorded. The only place that you're going to hear it is here on Relevant Tones. In fact, we were very honored to have been able to travel to New York City for the inaugural biennial of the New York Philharmonic. That was 21 concerts of new music over two weeks, and we covered that for Relevant Tones. And we're able to go to the world premiere of this Symphony No. 4, which I thought really was a highlight of the biennial in so many ways. It's a relatively short piece by symphonic standards, just over 20 minutes long. It's in two movements, but I'm going to take you now to the conversation that I had with Rouse. This is in the audio booth in Lincoln Center at the New York Philharmonic when we were talking about Symphony Number no. 4. To me, I imagine people will find it very enigmatic. It's in two movements, a fast movement and a slow movement. And the fast movement is very, um, I suppose, celebratory. Uh, and this uh, slow movement is not. Is there any kind of programmatic theme? Oftentimes there's a mythological theme in your work or, or uh, you know, about a person. Is there anything like that in Symphony Number no. 4? No. Pure music? Well, is there such a thing really as pure music? Outside of Cherny exercises or something like that, I think all music is programmatic in the sense that it's meant to elicit emotional responses through music that is descriptive of emotional states. Uh, it may not have to be narrative programmatic, you know, like the Symphony Fantastique or a Strauss tone poem, but the Beethoven Fifth is very much about moods, about states of mind. So is a Bach fugue. We don't have time to excerpt too much more of that conversation, but we went on to talk a little bit more about this idea of music as an emotional roadmap, if you will. And so although there's no mythological theme or code or game or anything in this piece, Symphony Number no. 4, it is kind of a, a emotional roadmap, as Rouse explained it there. The first movement, again, is very celebratory. The second movement is not, as he put it. It's very somber. It has this incredible ending. And I remember very specifically being on the edge of my seat, and I think a lot of other people in the audience were, too, as the music just sinks lower and lower, led by the contrabassoon and the bass clarinet. And I was thinking to myself, how much lower is this going to go? It's this incredible resonant sound as the percussion and these wind instruments just go down into the lowest part of their register. Very haunting ending to the second movement. Let's hear this journey from the celebratory first movement into this incredible ending of the second movement, the world premiere of Symphony Number no. 4. This is Alan Gilbert leading the New York Philharmonic, music of Christopher Rouse.
I don't know if you're on the edge of your seat, but I sure was at the world premiere of that piece, Symphony Number no. 4. Isn't it just an amazing ending? It puts you in this incredible new headspace, a very different space than you were in in the very beginning of the piece with that celebratory music. Here at the end now, we've sunk into this new place, but it's not gloomy to me, at least. I don't, I don't think that it is. It's uh, almost spiritual, this, uh, weirdly uplifting, if you will, considering that it's so low in the orchestra. What beautiful music. That was the world premiere of Symphony Number no. 4 by Christopher Rouse. We heard Alan Gilbert leading the New York Philharmonic. That was part of their New York Phil Biennial two weeks of contemporary music concerts. Also a very small sample of the music of this great composer, Christopher Rouse. He's written an incredible array of orchestral pieces. He's also written some chamber music, but I had the wonderful opportunity to chat with him for this show, and I asked him specifically, should I feature any of your chamber music? And he said, no, it's not representative. He really wanted the orchestra music to be featured. So of course, these pieces are very long, and we don't like to excerpt things on relevant tones when we can help it. So we were only able to feature three pieces, but this is really just a small sample of the incredible array of the output of this master of the orchestra. Relevant Tones is produced by Jesse McCorders. For more information about the program and the artists we've featured, you can find us on Facebook, and you can hear this and all previous programs at relevanttones.com. Relevant Tones is brought to you in part by the generous support of GCM Grovner, the Aaron Copeland Fund for Music, an anonymous donor, and the listener supporters of the WFMT Fine Arts Circle. I'm Seth Bostead, and this is the WFMT Radio Network.